Welcome to the Broken Token Classic Arcade and Pinball Podcast. So Whitney and I are sitting here at the podcast booth at the 2015 Louisville Arcade Expo, and we have something very special to bring to the listeners of the Broken Token Classic Arcade and Pinball Podcast. Whitney had an unbelievable opportunity this weekend. Whitney, tell us what happened. Okay. Well, it's kind of a multi-step story here, Brent, so I'll set the stage. Mr. David Crane, one of the founders of Activision, presented a seminar here at the Expo and talked about... 2600 development, his time at Activision, his involvement with Pitfall and Laser Blast, Kaboom, and just, you know, all of the landmark games that Activision published for the 2600. And so during the presentation, you know, like I say, he went back through the through development history and things like that. But I was fortunate enough, Brent, to kind of be able to pull him off to the side and ask him if he would be kind enough to sit down with us for essentially a one-on-one interview. And so, Brent, what everybody is getting ready to hear is around 45 to 50 minutes of David Crane and I sitting in a room together alone and just two microphones and two guys talking about his time at Activision, his time at Atari, and really his thoughts on his long career inside the video game industry. Now, what made this a little bit easier was I was also fortunate enough to be able to pick up and drop off Mr. Crane at the airport. So I was his shuttle service for the weekend as well. So you built a little bit of a relationship with Mr. Crane, fortunately. Yes, and he's a nice guy, and he has so much to tell. And there's so much, you you can tell there's so much going on with him. He's constantly kind of picking and choosing what he wants to talk about because there's no way that any of us can ever, you know, take it all in because he lived it. He was one of the pioneers, you know, in the industry. I tried to be as gracious as I could, but I also wanted to score an interview, Brent, because I don't know how our listenership goes from a console perspective. I mean, I grew up on the 2600 and on the NES, and Brent, I'm going to go ahead and toss it out here. For me growing up in the country, living on a farm and everything, when I got a 2600 for Christmas, it was almost the end-all, be-all for me. And I so heavily identified with that system throughout my childhood that when Activision came out, they made essentially the ultimate impression on me because I knew all the designers, I knew all of the developers, I knew all of the games by heart. You know, I so loved the box art and everything associated with it. Brent, when I when I heard that David Crane was going to be here at the expo, I was going to do whatever fat man backflips that could be done in order to get him on our show. And you know something? We got it done. Awesome, Whitney. Yeah. So, so sit back and enjoy what I would what, consider a once close in to a, an hour. It's close to an hour, and I would consider this almost a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for us, Brent, for having such a big name on the show, especially being here where we're at. I mean, David Crane doesn't visit Kentucky very often, I, but we got him was, when was he it did. said this was his first trip his to Kentucky? His first trip to Kentucky, yes. But you know what? We got him, and I got to ask him questions that, for me, have been 30 years in the making. So I, I really hope everybody enjoys listening to this as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. Sit back and enjoy an hour with Mr. David Crane.
We are live here at the Louisville Arcade Expo, and we have the very good fortune of sitting here with very distinguished guest, Mr. David Crane, one of the founders of Activision. Mr. Crane just uh, wrapped up a great seminar on developing for the Atari 2600, and we're fortunate enough to have him uh, sitting here with us today to uh, to have a kind of a follow-on discussion. So, uh, Mr. Crane, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So... <laughs> So, David, it, is it okay if I call you David? Is that all right? Sir. Okay. Th- thank you, sir. So, David, the presentation that, that you just wrapped up was a lot of background on what it took, or I guess what it still takes today to develop for the 2600. How often do you work with other developers as, as they're developing games or homebrew games or anything like that? I mean, are you still active in the 2600 community? Are you still you know, helping people with code, or is it, is it something you kind of do on the sideline, or what? Well, I'm really happy to see all of the homebrew stuff that's being done today, and a little jealous, actually, because I don't have time in my work to do a 2600 game, or I might do one myself. I don't have any situations where I have protégés or where I'm helping with people to do it. I see. But I have tried to capture and preserve for posterity some of the technical issues of the 2600. A few years ago, I was thinking, you know, I ought to write a book. And then I said, wait a minute, I am a publisher. I'm a video game publisher. So I actually developed some iPhone titles that uh, explain the magic inside the Atari 2600 and um, how Dragster was made and other things like that. And I'll occasionally do a, um, a magazine article showing how something was made. So I really I don't want that, that technology to be lost. So that brings up a very good question. I mean, if you're looking at the code for these 2600 games are there still remnants of pitfall are there still remnants of laser blasts that are out there that you think are used in in other games and just out of curiosity what's happened to the source code for all the activision games is that something that that you still have or still have access to or is archived at some point or is that code long gone well i'm sad to say that um all of the source code is gone uh the video game business the industry is one of the worst ever at preserving their history. We have groups, I mean, there's private collectors, there are museums, there are groups, groups who would dumpster dive outside of Atari to get the stuff that was thrown away because the companies just were so focused on chasing the next hit that they didn't preserve the old ones. Plus, a lot of these games uh, only have a shelf life of like three or four months these days. It was kind of the same back then. It's really nice that some of the classic games are coming back around, mm-hmm. but otherwise they had a very short shelf life. So, you know, companies could basically say that has no value to me anymore. That was several years ago. Jason Scott, who is um, working with the Internet Archive, is now pressuring people to, as he puts it, he said, you know, steal from your company. <laughs> he says, take that stuff home and archive it so that it can eventually be uh, be saved for posterity. Well, I think that it would be, you can't advocate that behavior naturally, but you would certainly advocate the end result of that behavior just to make sure that the code lives on and that, that the code doesn't doesn't disappear. I, it, it would be nice if that code were available, I, I know. So let me ask you this. When you look back on your time at Activision and everything that, that was accomplished there, what do you feel is probably one of the longest lasting legacies from Activision? When you think about leaving Atari, starting the company and everything like that, if, if there's one thing that sums up Activision, what, what would that be? Well, without a doubt, Activision's greatest legacy is the creation of the third-party 
publishing model. At the time that we left Atari, if you had an Atari game system and you bought a cartridge, that cartridge was made by Atari. Mm -hmm. If you had the Intellivision and you bought a cartridge, that cartridge was made by Mattel, who owns Intellivision. What Activision did was we became the first third party to create, develop, and publish games for someone else's system. And in fact, everybody tried to sue the pants off of us because of it. They thought there was something wrong with doing that. Whereas today, uh, that's pretty much all that it is, is everyone who's in the business is working for either a third party publisher or a third party developer. When you started Activision, I guess when, when the group of you started Activision and you looked at becoming the first third party developer, was there a lot of hesitation uh, in leaving Atari to start Activision? Did you feel that because you were going into this, I guess, essentially un, you know, uncharted territory, did you feel that you would be successful first out of the gate? Or was it more so an, an issue of we've got to do something and part of that something is leaving Atari? Well, Atari was a wonderful place to work for at one point, Understood. and it was no longer a wonderful place to work for by the time we left. There okay. were a bunch of problems corporately. As for whether we thought we would succeed, I mean, you don't ever do anything without thinking you're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. We certainly had confidence in our own abilities and uh, figured that we might as well be doing it for ourselves than for a company that we're not enjoying anymore. Yeah. An example of the management issues, it... it became known that the four of us who started Activision had accounted for 60% of Atari's game sales in the previous year. And Atari sold $100 million worth of cartridges. So the four of us had created that IP. Mm -hmm. So we went to the then president of Atari, Ray Kassar, and said, you know, at least offer us a royalty or a bonus or something. And he told us that as far as Atari is concerned, it's a corporate product, not an individual product. And so we were responsible for making the code, but the person on the assembly line was responsible for putting it together. And without both, you couldn't sell any games. So in essence, he told us that we were no more important to him and Atari than the guy on the assembly line. And they, yeah, that's devaluing the whole intellectual property contribution to everything. <laughs> yeah, that's that's... That's tough, and I can certainly understand that. When you all started Activision, what did you want to bring over from Atari? What worked from Atari that you brought over, and what did you all want to, to re, I, I guess, to kind of re-engineer, so to speak, in putting out your first series of games? Well, there was something that worked at Atari, and it was by accident, that we latched onto and uh, brought into Activision, and that was the design center concept. Basically, what we found is the four of us who started the company, plus our CEO, Jim Levy V, mm -hmm. but the four of us were the technical guys, and we worked very well together. Even though each game was one person working you know, individually, creating the art, the sound effects, the music, the programming, every single aspect of it was done by one person. But you're in a small group that um, is willing to kibitz and talk about the games. And so you would get suggestions from the rest of the group on how you might make the game better. And it would happen constantly. So we were getting the benefit of maybe a hundred years combined video game design experience 
for every game that we did. At Activision, we formalized that, and we decided that we would never have a group bigger than six, maybe. Okay. And we called it the Design Center. And um, when we needed to expand to grow the company, instead of putting six more people into one room, which would be chaos, we opened up a design center 3,000 miles away in New Jersey and put six people there. Okay. And they all worked well together. So we, we looked for people who had a group synergy, put them together, gave them all the equipment they needed and everything, and set them up to design games. I see. And that design center concept became a um, like a Harvard Business School test case or something. And uh, so it was it was accidental that the four of us went to lunch together and we just kind of hung around together. I see. Uh, that we realized that it was that working together well that made the game so good. The product certainly speaks for itself. And one of the things that I noticed growing up as a, a child of the 70s and 80s and getting to play almost every Activision game was that the cartridges, the box art, the manuals, everything had a personality at Activision. Atari's often lauded, I guess, at least the, the early Atari cartridges are often lauded for their box art and everything like that. The Activision games are, are no different. They're, I think they're widely heralded for the style of art that's used. Who came up with the branding for Activision? And who, who was responsible for the box art and, and the concept of the cartridge design and um, you know the instruction booklets and everything like that? Well, it all goes back to our CEO, Jim Levy, um, okay. who came from the record business. And he had really good feel for promotions and marketing and that sort of thing. But the impetus came from those of us at Atari or from Atari who didn't really care for the way Atari was doing it. It's kind of funny. You know the game Breakout. Yes. You know how that works. Yes. I mean, you're bouncing a ball and you're knocking out bricks. Right. They're clearly they're bricks and it's clearly a ball, right? Uh, if you read the manual of 2600 Breakout, it begins, you're flying through space and you encounter a multicolored force field. So rather than recognize that it's a ball bouncing up and hitting bricks, they painted this story around it because space games were popular. They decided to put it in space somehow, make yeah. it a force field. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So at the founding of Activision, I remember speaking up and I'm saying, look, the games that we make, the displays are really nice. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really high quality stuff. Why do we have to have some, you know, fictional story around it that doesn't make any sense, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we had this discussion and like like in many cases where cooler heads prevailed, Jim Levy said, you know, you're absolutely right. The game should show the actual art because when you bought a, an Atari game, you didn't know what you were buying. I mean, you thought you were buying some, you know, piece of art. You yeah. did. And yeah. if, you, if, you look at the, if you look at the box of Berserk or Missile Command or Defender, the, the game that you get on the inside is certainly different from the art on the outside. Right. So, but he said, however, the front of the box is really a nice place for some high-quality art. Mm -hmm. So we compromised, and there is a game screen, a real game screen, on the back. Yes. It's stylized a little bit because it gets hand-drawn rather than it's not done in pixels. Mm -hmm. It's done with an art, by an artist. But yes. it shows you what that screen is going to look like. Yeah. So that was kind of our compromise. Every game will have a real screenshot pretty much on the back. And then the front can be stylized and can be nice. The other family resemblance in Activision games is on the spine, on the side. Mm -hmm. 
I was in Jim Levy's office once, and every one of us had every one of the games as they came out in our own homes. Okay. Right? And you'd make a bookshelf, and we actually numbered them. <laughs> yeah, I've done the same thing at but, my house. Yeah. It sits the same. Yes. They, they actually have a number. AG001 was the first one. Dragster was AG001. Okay. And then boxing is 02, checkers is 03, fishing derby 04. So we would always line them up by order, of okay. course, too. But um, I was in his office, and he had all the Atari games, and he had them all lined up. And he said, look at those. And he said, there is no common uh, theme when you've got them on the shelf. Yeah. And Activision did. We used the same you know, font, the same, same everything. Font. Yeah. It was just so that on, when, when on a shelf, it showed that there was a family of products. And Atari, for example, Superman, they used the highly stylized Superman logo on the spine instead of something that tied them all together. Mm -hmm. So that was, um, again, it was all of us together having ideas, and, uh, but he was the champion of it for the entire time. Okay. Well, at some point during the Activision days, the box art kind of changed. So when you look at something like pressure cooker or skateboarding or something like that, kind of seemed to move away from the from the classic, I guess, kind of rainbow swoosh artwork that was done for Kaboom and Chopper Command and Mega Mania and Pitfall and things like that. What what was the impetus to change the art direction at that point in in the uh, I guess in the product history? Well, if you look at the schedule, Jim Levy left the company in 1987. Was that the primary driver? Well, he was there to be the guy in to manage it, to make sure it stayed that way. Yeah. And he was gone. Okay. Okay. So when you look back at the games that you've worked on or the games that you contributed to, what ideas did you have or do you have that never made it into a game? I mean, it, I'm sure there's many, but when you think back about what you wish you could have done from a game perspective, is there anything floating around from that viewpoint? Well, as I tried to convey in my discussion of the hardware of the Atari 2600, there's only so much it can do. Mm -hmm. And, for example, in Dragster, I used all of the display objects to make the Dragster. Therefore, there wasn't much left <laughs> to do on that part of the screen. But that's okay because it could move up and it could move down and it could accelerate to the end of the thing. And it worked for a drag racing game. But I had many games that I got to the point where they were finished games uh -huh. and they weren't fun and I wouldn't put my name on them and I they, see. they went on the shelf. And in most cases it was because, all right, I used up so many of the objects, the screen objects, to make a particular really pretty thing that I didn't have enough to add gameplay to, hazards and pickups and other things like that. So um, yeah, I had a uh, motocross game which had a fully articulated motocross bike where the tires move independently and all sorts of things, and it would go up and down bumps, and, mm -hmm. and it was really cool. And you could drive it around, and you could drive it around on bumps, and that was about it. I mean, so, yeah, maybe you could try to race with it, but it just wasn't an Activision-quality game. It, it, it just wasn't <laughs> compelling enough, I guess. Yeah, now, somebody else might have just put it out. But yeah, I, understood. But we didn't. Yeah. I took the same motorcycle into a jumping game, like you know, jumping buses, but I didn't have any buses because there was no more objects to put under there. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was just a accelerate as fast as you can and jump and see where you landed and game over. Yeah, It was just boring. So it never made it out. I wish I could find the sources of those because 
you know, they have historical value, even if they wouldn't have been fun games. Yeah. One of the things that's always stood out to me about an Activision game was the field of depth of the colors chosen. And I know you touched on that a little bit in the prior uh, seminar that, that we were just at, where you talk about the color palette and the available options and everything uh, along those lines. But it seemed like Activision was very famous for creating, I would guess, an aura of color around sunset and around changing weather conditions and night and day. And, and there seemed to be a lot of extra care uh, or fit and finish put into the Activision games that we just never saw on the Atari games. Whose idea was it to go that extra mile? Was that something that you all as a group decided to do? Or was that someone's brainchild to say, let's kind of create a reoccurring theme across the Activision games? Well, I don't know if it was all about a reoccurring theme, although as soon as we came up with the... Um sunset it was so pretty it had to go into a lot of games it was beautiful yeah yeah i'm sorry it is beautiful right. yes in fact there's a story behind that with a venetian blind you might ask about me later ask me about that later. was actually going to be my next question but um, yeah but yeah we can get to that no it was really a matter of polish i mean the four of us gravitated together at atari and ended up founding activision because we had the same values we really cared about the polish of the game we used to say that the final 10% took 90% of the time and effort. And um, so certainly if you've just done, you know, when he was doing enduro, all right, enduro wasn't enough. Go back and put in some weather. Go back and put in some time, you know. All sorts of things like that. The final tweaks were really important to us, kind of our legacy. I see. Well, you brought up the Venetian Blinds technical demo. Maybe that's the best way to call that. I've done some reading on that, a little bit of research. What do you feel is the historical significance of that? I mean, I know much has been talked about litigation. Much has been talked about that being the differentiating factor that helped to differentiate. I guess I use that word twice, but to differentiate Activision's code from being a rip of Atari's code. How did that come to pass? Actually, it was just a funny story. I mean, you know, when Activision started, we became the first third-party uh, publisher of video game cartridges. And the companies that owned the hardware didn't like that, and they all tried to sue us, um, Atari being the first because we had left Atari. Mm -hmm. First they claimed we stole their trade secrets, which we didn't, and then they claimed this and they claimed that. And when it's clear when their lawyers were trying to figure out what things to claim that we did, I see. they went and talked to some of the technical people. Okay. And they came up with this term, the Venetian blind technique. Now I've demonstrated the actual Venetian blind technique. It was invented at Atari by Bob Whitehead and uh, used in video chess. And um, it's just a trick of getting more apparent objects on the screen, even though you're putting out an odd line of one object and an even line of the other nearby and so getting more, more, like I said, more apparent objects. So anyway, so when we were in the midst of being sued, uh, we read all the, uh, all the filings and everything, and one of the things they claimed that we stole is the Venetian blind technique. And we could tell that the lawyers had no idea what the Venetian blind technique was. I see. So I actually spent a week, instead of making games, and I made a cartridge that had a beautiful little window yes. with a landscape behind it, and a Venetian blind that you could joystick up and joystick down and control. And right. Each of the little slats would stack correctly, and they worked all the way. It was perfect simulation of a Venetian blind. Yes. 
It's beautiful. And we showed it around the industry, just saying, is this what they mean by the Venetian blind technique? Because <laughs> it was a Venetian blind. Uh, the funny part about it is the first visual occurrence of the Activision sunset mm -hmm. was in the Venetian blind demo. Okay. In other words, I had already started to put it in Decathlon and um, I think it was Barnstorming Okay. at the time. We were working on those two, and it was already going into those. And um, so I put it into the Venetian blind demo just because, just because, because I could. And so I was showing it around to all industry people, including programmers at other companies. Okay. And it was fine. Like, it was three days later that Steve Cartwright comes to me and he says, you realize that you just showed to our competitors one of these the cool things that you're, you're doing in one of the games and uh, realize that that was probably a mistake. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we liked that. We liked the colored swoosh on the Activision logo and all those things that we could do. We did it because we could. When you look at everything that became the Activision brand and then everything that rolled forward into games like Pitfall, which, as you were showing us earlier today, just a lot of the technicalities behind creating Pitfall, the mathematical routines and everything like that, were a lot of Activision games based upon innovations like that? I guess maybe the second way to ask the question is, I'm sure that there were some accepted standards in coding Atari 2600 games, and then there were, I guess, some secret sauce that Activision came up with, that you and other developers came up with. How much of that, from a percentage standpoint, is in every Activision game? I mean, did you guys reuse code? Did you share code with one another in order to help create that brand across the games? Or was that something, or were those routines kind of tightly guarded? Well, at Activision, it was really all about the secret sauce. Mm -hmm. um, it was, we had a body of work pushing us from behind. So every game we made had to be better than the game before. Well, how do you do that? And with the Atari 2600, it was typically come up with a way to use the hardware that the designer never intended that gave us extra capability. But everybody got their game ideas in different places. You know, some people just stared at the ceiling until the game came to them, you know. <laughs> Others wandered around outside until they saw, like, as I told in my story, the guy trying to cross Lakeshore Drive that, that yep. influenced uh, the creation of Freeway. Right. But more often than not, my inspiration was a new bit of technology. I would spend weeks, maybe even months in some cases, fiddling with the hardware until I could get it to do something that it nobody had ever done before. Okay. And the Grand Prix car is an example of that. And once I had it, it told me what the game was going to be. That technology lended itself to doing a race car with a racing stripe on it. Okay. So I did that racing, racing game, Grand Prix. Boxing, Activision's second game done by Bob Whitehead, uses the, um, the new size that I told about in my seminar. Uh-huh uses the ability of making the player quad, double wide, wide, quad wide, stretch it out, make the fist, double wide, you know. He basically pioneered that technology to make objects that were larger than just the tiny little tanks. Mm -hmm. And that technology went into fishing derby. We don't share code. There's, there's an example of one piece of shared code, I'll tell you. But in that particular case, Bob just wrote the shark for me. He created the shark because he was good at that technology. He had just invented it. I see. So the shark is using the technology of the boxers. Okay. The most dramatic technological improvement that I was involved in had to be 
the dragster. I demonstrated in my uh, seminar how it uses kind of the same code as a six-digit display that right. we invented. Right. But it actually, it does, but it also doesn't because it can move across the screen. So the six-digit display was so integrally involved in when you could write data to the screen. What if you move the objects? Now everything has to change. So I actually figured out a way to create that same effect, but one in which could move and be on any position of the screen. And I was out at a local mall at the food court one day when, when the programmers from, uh, from a Magic were wandering around. And these were all guys who used to be at Atari. They were the second shift to leave Atari after Activision. And um, we were talking about it. And it turns out that they, um, they had just taken the code right out of Pitfall not the source. They they took the ROM image right out of Pitfall, and were using it for their six-digit score, because it gave them the ability to do six-digit score, but anywhere on the screen. I see. And rather than even figuring out how it worked, they just took the code right out of the ROM and admitted it to me. So was that commonplace? Did you find that happening in in other you know scenarios? Because a Magic and other publishers continued to I guess push the envelope you know a little bit later on down the line from a timeline perspective and a lot of those publishers were really successful. How much of Activision do you see inside those other titles? Well I mean we like I said we were being pushed from behind by our body of work. Uh -huh. Well it was also pushing them as well. Yeah. Um, there's only so many things you can do with the Atari 2600 hardware. I mean, we, we expanded greatly beyond its designer's intentions, what it was capable of, but there's still only, only so many things you could do. The person who saw the swinging vine in Pitfall, the game programmer, knew exactly how it was done immediately. Mm -hmm. They might not have thought of it, mm -hmm. but as soon as they saw it, they immediately knew it. He could deconstruct it That's just right. like that. Yes. When they saw that the dragster was you know, that wide and able to move, it astounded them. And there's some tricks involved in there that I didn't even go into in my seminar. They're so, so just esoteric Yeah. that they didn't even bother to try to deconstruct it. They just took it. Yeah. But the next game after that, that's commonplace now. So it all gets built into the technology. So we were never open with each other. We were always trying to keep what we're doing away from our competitors because you need that few months of advantage when you put out a game. That's true. But as soon as it's out, they have all of the same things you have. Except for the um, dragster kernel of code, you never reused code on the 2600 simply because every wow. s computer cycle was critical. If I changed one instruction to represent, instead of representing this kind of game, it represented that kind of game, if I changed one instruction, it would break the whole thing. So you ended up starting over from scratch and counting your machine cycles to get things to happen at a certain time perfectly and all that. So there really, it was, it was so integral between the microprocessor and the hardware that you couldn't reuse the code because it was designed to do only one thing. Yes. Sounds like it was very specific to the purpose of that game. Is it fair to say that the code just would really have no portability forward for another game just because of how tight everything had to be? Yeah, that's true about the code. Yes. Now, the game ideas and the game concepts are different entirely. Sure. Uh, Steve Cartwright got his job because he came in. He was a friend of mine, and I brought him in, and... As I said at Activision, it was more important that you could work together with someone than 
what they did. Understood. Okay. Uh, they had to fit into the synergy of the group, and I had known Steve for a long time. And he came in and he proposed five different game ideas. But what we could see that what they were was he looked at skiing and knowing that if the 2600 could do skiing, then the 2600 could do uh, whitewater canoe rafting, mm -hmm. where instead of a skier, it's a raft or it's a canoe. And uh, so he proposed games that could be made based on looking at all the technology that had been done before. So it was clear that he saw that he could take a working game concept and retask it into a different game and have a fun game. And barnstorming is skiing on its side. You go up yes. to go over and you go down. Well, yeah. that's in sideways. It was to go sideways to one yeah. gate and over to the other. And you mentioned that. To me, uh, Sky Jinx is a lot like skiing as well. It, I can see some of the characters and the graphics swapped out, but there's a lot of similarity there. And now thinking about everything you've talked about with the new size capability and everything, you can see where the shadows come from. And you can see how the trees are laid out, you know, in skiing and things like that. It starts to click. It starts to make sense. Right. So let me ask you this. When we fast forward to Pitfall 2, Lost Caverns, and you had mentioned developing the custom sound chip for that game, was there any intent on using that sound chip outside of Pitfall 2? Because I don't recall, just kind of thinking back in the catalog, the Activision catalog, I don't recall any other game having the depth of sound that Pitfall 2 had or has. I'm kind of curious as to what happened to that technology after Pitfall 2. Well, first of all, the uh, chip in Pitfall 2 had expanded sound in it, but yes. it was definitely not a sound chip. It was uh, actually a graphic enhancement chip. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. It, it let right. us do more things in graphics. I see. And it also just happened to have all that music in it. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate um, the clarification, and thanks. And it was intended to keep the 2600 alive for a few more years. That was its job. Okay. The 2600 was clearly coming to its end. You know, other people were shelving that, putting it in the back of the closet and putting a newer newer technology machine in front of them. Since Activision pretty much owned the 2600, you know, high-end game field at that point, we wanted to keep it going. Mm -hmm. So I designed that chip to keep the 2600 alive, and it probably would have, except the whole industry started to crash as well. Uh, so the uh, demise of the 2600 went along with the demise of the industry and accelerated even more. I see. So in fact, that chip exists only in Pitfall 2. So with that, you say that there's expanded graphics capabilities and expanded sound capabilities. When you look at the capabilities of the 2600 built in, what were the additions from a graphics perspective? And how was that exploited with Pitfall 2? Was it the rise and the fall of the wave of the water? Was it the shadows? Was it some of the physics in the game? What brought that about? What was the necessity? What inside Pitfall 2 drove you to make that chip? Well, the 2600 had hard limitations. We know it had two 8-bit player objects, but then with new size, you could make multiple copies of right, them. Right, right. But there was an absolute hard limit. The hardware existed. It was in Grandma's house. So the cartridge really couldn't do anything about what hardware existed out there. <laughs> in Grandma's house. It's already there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a fair analogy. Yeah. 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 The next question is, what could we do with the processor? Well, the 6502 CPU is also in the game system. Uh -huh. runs at 1.2 megahertz. And it was pretty clear that if we could like have a faster processor, we could change more things on the, on the line, the scan line, and get more stuff to happen. Yeah. 
So the gist of what the Pitfall 2 chip does, it's actually called the DPC for Display Processor Chip. Yes. It also happened to be my initials, which is why it was named that way. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a neat bit of trivia, yeah. Yeah, the DPC contained auto-incrementing counters. If you were going to do a tank game, for example, you would have a vertical counter in software, which is a variable that counts down. Mm -hmm. That way you know if you want the tank to start at line 27, when it gets to 27, you compare a value to this value, and you say it's now time to do the tank, and you branch over and you do the tank, and you do all this sort of thing. What the auto-incrementing pointers did in Pitfall 2 is they pointed at graphics and they had counters, in essence, for top and bottom of where to start and where to end. So put out zeros until you get to the start, then put out the graphics, put out zeros till you get to the end, and then put out, and you're done. You're done with the screen. Do it all over again when you get to the top. By automating that process, you eliminate several lines of code during the scan line. So now I've saved microcycles inside the um, inside the display kernel. So that means now where I couldn't before change the color of two other things on the screen, now I can. So that there was no specific use in Pitfall 2 of that, given the fact that now I can do more processing on a single scan line, what can I do? Okay. And uh, that gave me more capability in the game itself. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the sound. The tune for Pitfall 2 is very catchy. It's, it's very easy to listen to. I think it adds a lot to the game. To rewind just a little bit, one thing that I noticed that made the biggest impression on me as a child playing Activision games was the sound. The bass was there. The contact was there. You felt the blast in Chopper Command. You felt, I guess, the sound of the acceleration in, in Dragster and Grand Prix and things like that. What about Ural's code made <laughs> made those sounds so much better in Activision games than what we would get in combat or something like that? Because there was a clear distinction between the Activision games and the Atari games. I'm just kind of curious as to, as to how you guys were able to roll that so much differently, knowing the limitations of the system. Well, you, you don't even know the limitations of the system. Uh, people don't really know how sounds are made on the Atari 2600. It's really very simple. You have... Uh, two different channels, and those channels can make a tone or a noise. Interesting. Okay. And what tone that is is based on the frequency control that you set and um, what kind of noise can be selected a little bit. So there's like a white noise and there's a, a uglier white noise. <laughs> I guess that's a pink noise. They call it. <laughs> yes, a fuzzier um, white noise. Yeah, so there, yeah. there are a few of those things. And every sound effect is actually a program that is... Reading data from a ROM, maybe, from a table, and outputting, changing the volume every frame, changing the sound type every frame. So tremendous amount of experimentation had to go into making these sound effects. So it's, it's really the same thing we've talked about all along, which is that extra 10%, uh, the polish at the end, is we put a lot of effort into those sound effects. It got to the point where, you know, so, so what I'm saying is you can't just, like, go to the sound effects guy and have him record a sample. Well, and, and that was going to be my next question. Did you as the developer create your own sound for the game, or did you work with a group of people to come up with the soundtrack for the game? In that era, every aspect of the game came out of my fingers. I mean, I was That's sitting... beautiful. Yeah, was it's, sitting so, it's a, so neat. I was sitting at a desk with a 
graph paper. Mm -hmm. I colored in the pixels on the graph paper and then read them in. The only help you would get is have somebody read the numbers while you type them in. You know, just typing in the hexadecimal equivalents of what the drawings were on the graph paper. Same thing with... That's, that, that's amazing yeah. when you think about how game development is done today. Exactly. exactly. Compared to today. Yes. Um, so every line of code, every sound effect, you know, everything in that game was one person. So we all had um, our own expertise, I suppose. However, as I told you before, we shared expertise. We kibitzed with each other. Mm -hmm. A good example of that is Carol Shaw was working on River Raid. And um, she had the game play exactly as you know it to a certain point. And uh, it just wasn't fun. And so we kind of put our heads together, and I suggested that you create a bridge that you blow away at each level. Mm -hmm. And so at least you've got this feeling of accomplishment where you get from level to level to level. Okay. And then she can ramp up the game play at each level. So creating the bridge, uh, I probably drew it, and she put it in. And, you know, she wasn't heavily into graphics, so we would help her tweak her graphics and, and make the plane look better or whatever. Okay. And then finally, we're getting near the end of the game. The game's pretty well working. And I'm sitting in the lab with five or six other people. And Carol kind of turns around and she said, I need a sound effect for when the jet is low on fuel. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was a little bit of silence. And I said, all right, try this. And I... I told her off the top of my head, I told her the code to type in. And she typed in you know, 25 lines of code, started the game, and the um, low fuel alarm, er, 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 uh -huh. Yes. that's actually a program making that sound effect happen. That was just off the top of my head from across the room. Wow. I remember Mike Lorenzen was in the room and just shaking his head, <laughs> thinking, how do you do that? You know? He's like, how does that even happen? <laughs> well, one of the questions that I've been wanting to ask for quite some time, is, and I've, I've read reference to this, is how you've defined gravity in two lines of code. Can you go into that? Because it sounds to me like there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of code that's, that's been floating up in your head for years and years and years. How did you define gravity in two lines of code for the Atari 2600? Well, you have done your homework. So I was working on the game Canyon Bomber. Uh -huh. And in Canyon Bomber, you drop bombs into these blocks that are worth points. And um, if you undermine a block the upper block has to fall down and take up the space of the lower block. I see. So that was how the arcade game worked. Now, I also had a game option where I could turn off the gravity, mm -hmm. which is a different story. But anyway, so I'm new to this. Canyon Bomber is only my third game, I think. So I sit down with my notepad, and I start scribbling gravity calculations that I knew from physics. Okay. I mean, you know. And um, scribble a page full of stuff, and it's, I can't implement that. There's no, there's no square root in the. <laughs> That's not going to work. The 6502, you know, <laughs> and I keep hassling it down. And then finally, it just occurred to me that basically the the blocks down there are using RAM. Remember our limited RAM? There's only 128 bytes. Yeah. They are using that, and it occurred to me that looking at the binary image of these blocks, if there's a hole it's a zero, and if there's a block, it's a one. If I take that and and it with the one above, I put the hole where, the, where a one might have been, and I save that and then or it back down, and as soon as I just do an and and an or, 
I have made the hole bubble up to the top and the bit bubble down to the bottom one. And I just run that in a loop up and down. And so you can actually see them slowly, you know, loop and fall <laughs> like that. So it had nothing to do with gravity. That's it unreal. Had, there was no acceleration. There was nothing but... But it created the effect. It did create the effect. Yes. And when you only have 2K bytes of code, being able to do it with an and and an or Is, saved, saved a lot. Saved a lot. Well... When you look at, when I guess when you look at the library of code that has been created for the 2600, especially what Activision has done, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to start developing for the 2600? And it's interesting that I'm even asking you that question 30 plus years you know, on after the system hit the market, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who may have been a little uh, apprehensive to start developing for the 2600. They may feel that it's, it's a little too hard to write in assembly language today. How would you counsel somebody to get started so that they could create their own library of gravity in two lines of code? <laughs> well, I mean, the first thing is to just start hacking at it and try because it's very simple. You'll know very quickly if it's fun or not to do mm -hmm. this. This was the hardest piece of technology I ever worked on. And it was also the most fun I ever worked on. Okay. Now, why is that? That's a quirk of personality, obviously. So you have to have that quirk. But beyond that, my advice to the indie developers is you've got at least 8K of ROM now. Use it. Mm -hmm. A game that has just one main character, that main character should really pop. You know, work really hard on every pixel you put in there and use a lot of animations and a lot of fun stuff. Because the game has to be fun to look at as well as fun to play. Yeah. If you were to pick it back up today, what would be the tool set that you would use in order to start developing code again for the 2600? I'm sure the tool sets have come a long way over the past 30 years. Have you been keeping up on the tool sets as they've modernized? How would you get back into that? The tools are actually the problem, in my opinion. <laughs> um, I, I could, Fair enough. I could easily start writing a 2600 game, but I used to have animation tools where I could change each pixel and animate it and see how it looked. Don't have that anymore. Okay. You know, pixel editors are gone. Uh-huh. You know, if you have Photoshop, it's it's hard to find the pencil that talks to a pixel. Everything else is brushes and brush strokes yes, yes, and all yes. this. Yes. Um, so pixel editors are almost gone. And of course, now everything is JPEGs. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to do a pretty screen using some of my higher technology tricks, mm -hmm. I would probably have to write a tool that took a JPEG and moved it into pixels that were colored by rows and lines instead of individual colors and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I would spend more time writing tools and I'd write the game to start with. Well, it's an interesting answer to the question because when you look at just the road assemblers that were used to compile the machine language and everything, did Activision create their own tools? I mean, did you guys have to spend a certain amount of time priming the Activision machine before you could even get you know, your first game out? Or was that tool set very well established at that time in the industry? No, there were no tools at all. Okay. Um, we had to build everything. From the beginning, I had to build a development system that let you develop. Wow. Now, a development system is basically a ROM emulator that uses RAM and plugs into the cartridge slot. But more than that, it has to be able to um, set breakpoints, stop the code, modify memory, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I built those for Activision, wired up five of them, and uh, we, <laughs> you know, we got going. And um, then you have to write the uh, code that lets you control the memory 
then, like I said, the animators. Pretty soon, I mean, when we got into like the C64 era, we finally started having professional artists. Yeah. And yet, that was a different breed too, a pixel artist drawing. They used to use the thing called a koala pad on the, 60, on the Commodore 64 where they could actually draw the pixels and all that. But every time a new system came out, we had to write new tools, mostly graphic converters. Uh, most of the graphics you see on the Super Nintendo, on the NES, uh, Commodore 64, are character-based graphics. That is true, yes. Sprite-based graphics. No, they're yeah. actually, the backgrounds are even character-based graphics. So they're 8 by 8 things that have to be defined. And um, if there's a lot of blue sky, there's only one 8 by 8 blue. And that's used for it's the whole sky. just repeated? It's repeated. Yes, okay. That's why Super Mario Brothers looks the way it does. Those are all characters. Okay. Those are all little square characters on the, you know. So we wrote uh, code that would take an image like a JPEG, although back then it was a Super Paint LBM. Okay. And we would take that and convert it into characters, and they would report, you got too many characters. This picture can't be rendered in characters. And so the artist would have to go through and make this look more like that and, and make these characters match over here. And you keep doing it iteratively until you get the character count down to the minimum or the maximum you're allowed. So every single game system required all this kind of tool writing first. That's utterly unbelievable when you look at the development environments that are available today. And I know game developers are, have a wide array of tools that they can choose from to create their games. It's definitely, a, I guess, a completely different mindset when you have to create your tools from nothing. <laughs> yeah, it was a different, uh, different world. Yeah. The, the IGDA gave to me and my founders at Activision the, uh, their Pioneer Award, which they called the First Penguin Award. And the First Penguin Award is actually a story that um, the, after the horrible winter that the peng you know, male penguins have spent guarding the uh, eggs, they all march back to the sea, and they all stand at the top of the cliff because there's, there's uh, predators in the water. And they all stand there starving to death until one guy decides he's going to jump in and go eat fish. And uh, that's the first penguin. And as soon as he surfaces, everybody sees he's still alive, and they all jump in. So the, ph the philosophy of the first penguin is the person willing to take the risk mm -hmm. And then when he shows that it uh, is possible, everybody else can follow in his footsteps. Right. That's what pioneering in video games was about. Yes. Take yes. the risk, do it. We had no support systems. We had no tools. We had to do absolutely everything ourselves. On the business side, our guy had to figure out how do you sell video games, how do you market video games, how do you do all these things. And the early Activision pioneered these. I mean, a library of books could be written about the innovations that Activision brought to the video game business. That's something that I wish that we could sit and read all of that because even just getting the time to talk to you today, David, has been invaluable because I have a feeling that as the years continue to march by, a discussion like this will one day become impossible because the, the intellectual property, the people with the contextual knowledge, once they're gone, where is it at? And so I appreciate your time in talking about this today. I, I know I've had a great time listening, listening to this and hearing the stories and just being able to connect with a part of my past that really meant a lot, really meant a lot. 
So are you working on anything right now from a book perspective? I, I know you mentioned that at the very beginning of the interview. What are your plans from taking your experience in the industry and rolling it forward over the next several years? I was making video games programming every day, eight hours a day, up until about two and a half years ago. Okay. Now it's it's a lot less, but mm-hmm. I am still dabbling. I have ideas every day, and I think about it. Yeah. Um, I even might do a 2600 game, although, again, what really holds me back is the tools I would have to write first. <laughs> yeah, understood, understood, understood. Yeah. Well, we certainly look forward to anything that, that you would do, anything that you would publish. I mean, undeniably, you're one of the greats in the industry. And just thank you for taking the time to sit and talk with us today. Learned a lot. I've been able to ask a lot of questions that have been on my mind for 20-some-odd years. And so even just from a purely selfish standpoint, I walk away a much bigger Activision fan than I was when we sat down. So I appreciate your time, and thank you so much. And I know you got a plane to catch. We'll certainly make that happen. That's great. It's been fun. Oh, thank you, sir. Congratulations. You made it to the end of another episode of the Broken Token Podcast. I promise they'll do better next time. Maybe next episode, they'll actually listen to me for a change. Just go easy on the guys. They don't have a lot to work with, but I know their moms would be so proud. We want to hear your feedback, comments, rants, raves, and otherwise, both good and bad. Drop us a line via email at podcast at brokentoken.com. You can also call us at 470-2-CALL-BT. That's 470-222-5528. And leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you, and we might play your message on air in the next episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Broken Token and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Broken Token. Britt and Whitney are always posting content between the official episodes, and it's a great way to stay involved with the show between the shows. You can find our podcast on the iTunes store and on Stitcher Radio. Just search for Broken Token and subscribe to the show. Like what you hear? Please consider leaving us a review on the iTunes store and on our Stitcher Radio page as the reviews help out the show. Please visit our website at brokentoken.com for articles, reviews, restoration logs, direct show downloads, and expanded show notes for this and every episode. Once again, thanks for listening. The Broken Token Podcast would like to thank the only person on staff who has actual vocal talent, Miss Christy Letzi. And that's me. <laughs> Music for the Broken Token Podcast, graciously provided by Hacy Dixie. Head over to their website at www.hayseed-dixie.com for videos, tour dates, merchandise, and to purchase music. Music